Hello, everybody. This is Joanna Harcourt-Smith at futureprimitive.org, and I'm really honored to be here on the phone today with wise woman Susan Weed. Uh, she's a green witch. She's a teacher and an author. Susan Weed is the founder and director of the Wise Woman Teaching Center near Woodstock, New York, an initiate of Dianic Wicca and a member of the Wolf Clan. Susan Weed teaches the white wise woman tradition of healing using simple herbs, tales of wisdom, and a keen knowledge of the ways of the earth. Her books include Wise Woman Herbal for the Child-Bearing Years, Healing Wise, Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, and her most recent book, Breast Cancer, Breast Health. So, uh, Susan, would you like to say a few words uh, about... Uh, yourself and what has been perhaps the most recently in your mind and heart. Yes, I'd be happy to. First of all, let me say that I am a high priestess of Diana Wicca. Yes. Yes, not an initiate, a high priestess. Yes. Many, 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 many further years of activity and activity for the community and all of women. Secondly, my latest book is new, Menopausal Gears, The Wise Woman Way, Alternative Treatments for Women 30 to 90. Breast cancer, question mark, breast health, exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, is my second to latest book. And it's Wise Woman Herbal for the Child-Bearing Year, singular because that book covers a 13-month year. The two months before the pregnancy, the nine months of the pregnancy, and the two months after the birth. So it's wise women are both for the childbearing year, not years. Yes. So just a few comments on the things that you had said there to kind of get people a little more straightened out on it. And, of course, I have a wonderful website at susanweed.com with over 700 pages of free information for women, as well as a forum uh, where women that I have trained are there to help answer people's questions. And that's available to anyone at any time at susanweed.com. Right now, um, what's interesting and exciting is a variety of different things. My uh, dairy goats, I keep a small herd of dairy goats because um, I've never seen a woman be strong and healthy into old age without good quality dairy products in her diet. I'm a firm believer and advocate of every woman eating yogurt on a daily basis. Just to start off with, we know that women who eat a quart of yogurt a week have only one-third of the bladder infections and only one-half of the vaginal infections of women who eat no yogurt at all. Yes, absolutely. Very, very important. So I'm very excited that my ghosts are going to be giving birth here (sighs) over the next month. That's always fun. And I always say that the best cure for depression is an hour in the presence of a baby goat. Yes, Yes. Oh, very hard not to laugh and to be filled with the glee of life when you see them cavorting around. Um, I'm also back to press with all of my books, and that's wonderfully exciting, and working on a brand new book called Down There, The Wise Woman Way. Mm. No, it's not a book about Australia. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny, you know, I was in my kitchen uh, about 20 minutes ago making tabbouleh with fresh mint and fresh parsley. And um, I was thinking about you speaking about down there and, uh, and how wonderful to have the doors of down there open to the fresh air and perhaps to hear you speak about it. And uh, I don't mean Australia. <laughs> you know, it's wonderful to have that fresh mint and that fresh parsley there. But we do need to remember that nothing in nature eats raw food and that raw food contains no nutrition of any kind that we can get. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so I'm also a very, very strong advocate of cooking your food so that you can truly get good nutrition. Because I'm really interested in um, seeing this world changed by the large number of postmenopausal women. And that means I'm devoted to keeping those postmenopausal women healthy. And whether it's encouraging them to eat their food cooked, encouraging them to get off soy, which is such a liability to your health, okay. or um, encouraging them to uh, eat chocolate to keep their heart healthy. Yes. Um, yes, so living a long time and having a healthy life can be pleasant and easy. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, it, it was very interesting to me, Johanna. I, I said to myself, where am I going to start down there? There are so many down there things to start with. <laughs> And I decided to start at the cervix. Yes. And it was actually a really good choice for me because it made me really upset. Now, I don't have the statistics for Spain, but in the United States, on a yearly basis, approximately 5 million women will be told that their pap smear shows possible cancer of the cervix. Mm -hmm. This means 5 million women will be frightened that they have cancer, and we know that fear and stress make the immune system not very effective. So this is certainly not healthy for them. Of those 5 million women, only 10,000 will actually have cervical cancer. So this is a lot of women who are being distressed for nothing. And if it was only distressed for nothing, well, we could go, that's terrible, and maybe let it lie. But what we have to understand is that hundreds of thousands of those women will actually have drug and surgical treatments Mm-hmm. for the bad pap smear, even though they don't actually have cancer. Mm-hmm. And many of those will be women who will be diagnosed with a rather controversial situation in which there are cancer cells present on the cervix, but they're in the place where they've started growing. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, in 90% of the cases, if we do nothing about those cells, within a year they totally go away on their own. Mm-hmm. But modern science is freaked out and scared, and I'm not saying they're wrong to be freaked out and scared, about those 10% of the women who will progress to cervical cancer. And in the United States, 3,000 women a year do die of cervical cancer. Of those, approximately half haven't had a pap smear in five years, in which we might have found that cancer early enough to either offer them alternative or regular remedies for it. And the other half have had pap smears, but they have um, been, um, unfortunately, the victims of false negatives, so that they have gotten negative pap smear after negative pap smear, even though they actually have had cancer of the cervix. Mm -hmm. So it's far from a perfect situation. Um, But what I think is important here is to remember that... um, Modern medical science has no guarantees. We can go for a pap smear, but remember that half the women who are diagnosed with cervical cancer have had regular pap smears, and those pap smears simply miss their cancer. Um, So it's really our health is up to us. It's about what we do. Now, what causes those cervical cancer cells to go away, obviously, is a strong immune system. And there are a variety of different fairly easy things that we can do to increase the effectiveness of our immune system's ability to deal with cancer. And the immune system's ability to deal with cancer is different than, say, its ability to deal with a virus or its ability to deal with a bacteria. So I would say, first of all, in terms of our ability to strengthen our immune system to be able to deal with cancer, we want to arrange it so that we sleep in a room that is completely dark. Yes. The effect of light at night on the brain's ability to make melatonin, one of the most potent cancer-fighting hormones, is beyond question now. The tiniest amount of light in the room, in other words, a little night light, or a clock with lit-up numbers, or even a computer or a television or a, um, a, a music player that has a little telltale light on it, yeah. that's enough to disrupt a melatonin production. Wow. So it really must be dark. They found that men who worked alternating night and day shifts 
were four times more likely to have prostate cancer. Women who work night shifts are five times more likely to get breast cancer. The effect of light at night on our brains and our bodies is incredibly detrimental. Now, many women say, well, I don't live in the country. I live in the city, and there's lots of lights. What can I possibly do? Mm-hmm. Well, possibly the easiest and least expensive solution is to buy a sleep mask. Right. They're very, very inexpensive. <laughs> And you put it on, and it covers your eyes. If you can get one that's slightly big so that it comes up and covers that area that we call the third eye, which is right Mm -hmm. above the eyebrows, I find that to be more effective. In situations where people feel that they're at high risk for cancer, then I would urge them to go further and to actually buy heavy, dark material to hang over their windows. I have to tell you that on the rare occasions when I have to uh, spend a night um, not in a home, but in a you know a place that's for rent, like a hotel or a motel, mm-hmm. the very first thing that I do when I go in the room is I start unplugging things. I unplug the TV, I unplug the clock, I unplug every electrical thing in the room. Yes, yes. All right, so that so that I'm not getting any of that light at night, and I will go to great lengths to block out the light, even if I have to use every towel from the bathroom to put it under the drapes or under the door so that there's really no light. So that's actually, you know, it takes a little thoughtfulness, but it's a very easy and inexpensive thing to do. The next thing that I do to keep my immune system strong is that I make certain that my diet is richly supplied with plant hormones. And those are sometimes called phyto sterols, and they're sometimes called phytoestrogens. Mm-hmm. And these substances are found in every root and every seed. And of course, seeds include all whole grains such as brown rice, corn, whole wheat, barley, and roots would include not just carrots, but also turnips, swedes, um, beets, burdock root, and a wide variety of nourishing roots that are used in herbal medicine, including dandelion root and astragalus root, which are very well known for improving the immune system's ability to deal with cancer and specifically to deal with reproductive cancers, which would include breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, and prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, there's somewhat of a trick in terms of eating plant hormones. And here's the trick. The hormones in plants are not usable by the human body. Mm-hmm. And so if you read scientific accounts, they will say, oh, poo, 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 those herbalists don't know what they're talking about. None of the hormones in these plants are usable by the human body. And that's absolutely true. But we convert the plant hormones into human hormones by a process of fermentation in our gut. And so we're right back to yogurt, aren't we? Mm -hmm. We have to have a lot of beneficial bacteria in our gut in order to make this fermentive process that changes the plant hormones into the human hormones. They did a very interesting study, actually several studies. First of all, they looked at urinary excretion of byproducts of this fermentation. In other words, when these plant sterols are converted into human hormones, certain constituents are thrown off into the urine. So we can gauge pretty well how effective this conversion is. And in 100 women, the 25 who had the highest levels of these compounds in their urine were four times less likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer in the following 10 years. Mm. That's a pretty strong effect there. When they gave these 100 women an antibiotic, the urinary output of these compounds fell to zero in every woman. So, again, that antibiotic is killing off gut flora, and therefore we cannot convert the hormones in the plants into our own human hormones. It's not just antibiotics that kill gut flora, though. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you could think of maybe another thing or two that could kill gut flora. Tell me. 
chlorinated water. Wow. And, of course, all industrialized countries chlorinate their water. Yep. And we chlorinate the water in order to kill bacteria. Bacteria. And so it does that in your gut, too. As a matter of fact, I would venture that drinking chlorinated water, although it is a tremendous public health service and has certainly cut down on the number of waterborne diseases that we have to deal with, nonetheless, that chlorine has led to a kind of chronic low level of disease across most of the populations of the industrialized nations. And what kind of diseases would these be? These are the diseases of a low-level inflammation, blood vessel disease, uh-huh. arthritis, and cancer. I see. Which is the exact, exactly the diseases that are occurring in large segments of the population of all industrialized countries. Right. Right. So um, it's fairly inexpensive to buy a filter to filter your water, but even less expensive is simply to boil your water. If you bring your water to a boil and boil it, even for as little as one minute, it forces the chlorine out of the water. For anyone who does not have access to a way to boil your water, because chlorine is a gas, if you put your water in a large open container like a bowl with Mm -hmm. a large surface area and let it sit out for 24 hours, most of the chlorine will simply dissipate from it. I'm I'm rinsing my hair with filtered water now uh, when I wash it because it was so packed with chlorine. And you can really see that in the brittleness of your hair. Absolutely. I, and I'll tell you what, when you take a shower or a bath, you're using hot chlorinated water. Yes. And remember, the chlorine is a gas. And that means that you're making it become gaseous because of the heat. And you're breathing it in. Because, again, chlorine is a gas. And, in fact, when you're taking a shower in hot chlorinated water, you're breathing in 10 to 20 times more chlorine than if you drank the water. Wow. So that filter on your shower is, in many respects, even more important than the filter on your water. Because, as we just established, you can get rid of the chlorine in your water just by you by, know, boiling. by boiling it off and don't stand around and breathe it or just by sitting it out. But when you're in the shower, you don't have that opportunity to get rid of it. The same thing with swimming in chlorinated pools, taking hot tubs in chlorinated water. Right. All of these things are somewhat damaging to gut flora and therefore somewhat damaging to the immune system because good gut flora is actually part of the immune system and really helps right there in controlling the amount of bacteria that can move from the gut into the body. So these are two really, you know, basic kind of life things with light and water that we often don't think about but that have very, very big repercussions in our lives. And, of course, then eating plants that are rich in phytoestrogens and making sure that we have enough gut flora to ferment those out. I mentioned astragalus, which is a very famous plant, uh, generally used in China. And it's the root of a legume or a bean family plant. And, of course, the bean family plants are seeds, just like the grains are. And so, again, they're quite high in the phytosterols. As a matter of fact, soy, which many people think of as being high in these compounds, is about mid-range. There are many, many kinds of beans that have far more phytosterols than soy does. And soy has massive problems associated with it. I'm sure you've been reading or hearing about those, yes? Well, instinctively, I, I know that soy is not for me. And instinctively, I eat a lot of yogurt. So you are confirming those instincts. In Israel, they set up a public health commission which looked at all the studies that had been done on soy, and they spent three years looking through those studies. And approximately two years ago, that commission came out with a recommendation, and its recommendation was that no one under the age of 18 should eat soy in any form, and that adults should be aware that eating soy contributes to heart disease, breast cancer, Alzheimer's, and thyroid problems. Well, wait, what about 
the the Japanese people, in, including the women, having uh, less problems in menopause because they eat a lot of soy products. I'm sorry, it's not true. Okay. Have you ever had a simwuzik? A what? It was a word I just made up. Okay. <laughs> Of course you've never had one, because it's not a, a word in your language. Hot flash does not exist in the Japanese language. How can you have a hot flash if there's no word for it? Japanese women have tons of menopausal symptoms. I was just there. Okay, but... I don't have hot flashes because I don't have a word for a hot flash. So you can't have a smigviki, and they can't have a hot flash. Okay. But it doesn't mean it's not happening. Every study that has looked at hot flashes and soy has found that soy increases hot flashes. Okay. Okay? You're right. Right. Not only that, in a 30-year study done in Japan, any (laughs) Japanese person who ate tofu more than once a week doubled their risk of Alzheimer's. Okay. There is no soy beverage available in Japan, and yet industrialized, westernized countries consume huge amounts of soy beverage. Right, and consuming tofu and soy beverage leads directly to osteoporosis and poor bone health. Mm-hmm. So, really, not a good idea for women at all. Soy contains two types of phytoestrogens, and there are four types. Red clover and astragalus contain all four types, mm-hmm. and it appears to be that the soy just having two types totally throws our bodies out of whack. In fact, the supposed benefit of eating soy in terms of breast cancer seems to be because soy causes breast cancer. Now, if this doesn't make any sense to you, let me explain a little more, and perhaps it will make sense. Yes. In Japan, young girls are likely to be eating tofu. And so when their breasts start to be formed, they are being formed in the presence of a carcinogen. And because they are, those breast cells are being formed in the presence of that carcinogen, they are formed with an ability to resist cancer uh-huh. process. Mm-hmm. But it does no good at all for any woman whose breasts are already grown to eat soy. And as a matter of fact, you're simply now eating a carcinogen. Mm-hmm. Plus, of course, the Japanese diet contains a lot of foods that are rich in phytoestrogens besides soy. Soy is not a particularly good source. Right, Red clover, to my mind, is a far better source, as is astragalus. Now, I, where I grew up, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, mm-hmm. and my breasts were being formed in the late 50s, which was the time that the U.S. government decided to set off over 300 above-ground atomic bombs. And the fallout from those atomic bomb tests was blown south by the winds into the area where I lived. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I do have an increased risk of a possibility of breast cancer. I deal with that by eating a healthy diet, by not having light in my room, by not drinking chlorinated water, and by drinking at least a quart of red clover infusion on a weekly basis. And let me tell you how I make an infusion, because an infusion is not a tea. Yes. A tea is a small amount of fresh or dried herb brewed for a short time. An infusion is a large amount of herb brewed for a long time. To make a tea, we can use either fresh or dried plants. It really doesn't matter. To make an infusion, we must only use dried plants. So we'd want to buy or harvest red clover in its dried state. We would harvest it fresh and dry it. We're going to use 30 grams of dried red clover, and it's mostly the blossoms. There can be, oh, up to 25% leafy matter in it. But if you buy it and it's mostly green, you're not going to get much good effect from it. So we want to see these beautiful red clover blossoms. They're not really red. They're more of a kind of magenta purpley color. Mm -hmm. And they should have a good color even in the dried herb. We're going to put 30 grams or one ounce by weight. This is not a volume measurement. It's a weight measurement into a liter or a quart jar. And we're then going to fill that jar right to the top with boiling water. Stir the herb into the water, put some more water in if we need to, put a tight lid on it, and allow it to steep for four hours or 
overnight. The longer it steeps, the better up to, you know, 12 hours. After that, it could start to ferment if it was very hot, so we wouldn't want to let it go any longer. And again, we're not adding any heat. We've just boiled the water, just the heat to boil the water, and poured the boiling water over the dried herb in the jar and put a tight lid on it. We'll then strain that out after it's steeped and squeeze the plant material to get all the good out of the plant material. And then we will drink that red clover infusion, either hot or cold. Red clover tastes a lot like black tea. It has many of the same immune-enhancing effects as black tea due to containing some of the same compounds, including tannins and other polyphenols. But in addition, the red clover contains things that the black tea does not. So it's an even more effective immune system strengthener. As a matter of fact, red clover is the world's leading anti-cancer, cancer preventative, and cancer-reversing herb, with more studies showing its effectiveness than any other plant that's ever been used against cancer, including burdock which does run a very close second. And the so, best way is to make an infusion. The best way for the red clover is to make an infusion of it because this way you have a concentrated amount of its nutrients and you have it in a water base so it's immediately uptaken by the blood and you don't actually even need to digest it. It literally comes in in a pre-digested form. Mm-hmm. And um, most people enjoy red clover infusion. If you like tea, then heat up the red clover and drink it the way you would tea. If you take a little honey in your tea, put that in it. If you take a little milk in your tea, put that in it. If you take lemon in your tea, put that in it. Other people like it uh, iced, just like iced tea. And some people like to, like myself, add just a tiny, literally a pinch of mint into the jar before we pour the boiling water in. And then it tastes like black tea with a little bit of mint in it, which I enjoy much more than just the black tea taste. So um, astragalus can also be cooked right into foods. We can make an infusion of it. It could also be used in tincture form. It seems to be effective that way. Red clover does not seem to be very effective in tincture form. The water base, I think, is much more effective. And this is partly because red clover contains substances that the immune system uses to actually repair damaged DNA. And, of course, damaged DNA is what gives rise to cancer. And even if that damage is genetic, even if there's a genetic propensity toward cancer, the red clover gives the immune system the raw materials it needs to repair that damage. Excellent. Truly remarkable. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, well, I wonder if uh, you would speak to us about grandmother growth. Uh, the other day you told me that uh, you have uh, a friend that's a guide that's 50,000 years old. Is that grandmother growth? That is very much grandmother growth. I first heard the term grandmother growth from Brant Secunda. Mm-hmm. And Brant, Brant went to study with the Weichel people. And when he got there, of course, he didn't speak their language, but he managed to communicate to them what he wanted. And they housed him with one of the oldest women of the group. Mm-hmm. And he recounts that the first morning there, he was awakened by the woman kicking him and saying in a very, very loud voice what he later learned was, get up, you lazy person, and give honor to the fire. Yes. Yeah. And, um, of course, Brandt often acts as though he was taught by one man there. The truth of the matter is, and if you talk to him, he's happy to admit it, he was taught by all of the old women in addition to this one man. It's just hard to credit a group of old women, right, none of whom especially want to be credited, so it's a lot easier to credit the man. At any rate, after Brandt had studied and gotten his lessons, the old women said to him, Well, Brandt, it's possible that you could, in fact, be a shaman. But there is something that you must do. And this is true all over the world, not just among the Weichel. In order for a man to be considered a shaman, and shaman is a Siberian word which means woman with a drum. Yes. In order for him to be a shaman, he has to be a woman. 
He has to find his womb. Delicious. And so what the old women, what the old uh, w- women of uh, this culture did was they took Brandt and they put him in the cave yes. of grandmother growth. Yeah. And they said, Brandt, we are going to leave you in this cave. No food, no water, no light, until you figure out how this cave came into existence. And when you have done that, we will be able to feel and know that you have done that, and we will come and let you out of the cave. Mm-hmm. And I think that the symbology is not too difficult for most people. I think that a cave is clearly a womb, a uterus, and that what they were asking Brandt to do was to find the womb within himself, to find that great healing resource which is the womb of the world, which is typified by the phrase grandmother growth. So when I realized that modern medicine had failed me, and I went in search of alternatives, I very quickly saw the real um, scary part of alternative medicine. You know, a lot of alternative medicine is in what I call the heroic tradition. And it has a lot to do with people being told that they're dirty and that they have to cleanse themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I had a friend who decided to go on a watermelon fast, just to eat watermelon for three days. And that probably wouldn't have been too terrible, except that she was, unknown to herself and any of us, a diabetic. And after eating watermelon for three days, she went into a coma and died. Wow. I had another friend um, who knew she was a diabetic, and an alternative healthcare practitioner told her that if she ate a certain way, she could not take her insulin. And she ate that certain way, which required her to carry food around with her. She got massive food poisoning from the food she carried around with her, and we almost lost her. She was in the hospital for six months with food poisoning. Wow. I uh, Actually, the first book that I wrote has never been published. I was hired to ghostwrite a book of health and beauty secrets for a very famous model in New York City. The terms of my contract prevent me from ever saying what her name was, but she died while receiving a colonic. Wow. And she is one of six people that I personally know who have been killed by colonics. Amazing. Not amazing. You see, in most countries, the medical profession is required by law to tell you what adverse effects of their treatments will be. And um, even if they don't do a particularly good job of it, they are required to do it, and they are actually trained to know what the adverse um, effects of a treatment will be. Whereas people who practice alternative medicine do not know, are not required to tell you, and are not trained to know what the adverse effects are. Mm-hmm. Many people who do colonics have no idea that it messes up your electrolyte balance and destroys your ability to have a bowel movement on your own. Right. right. Many people who suggest fasting as a way to cleanse do not know that within 24 hours of not eating solid food, liver function, and of course the liver is the really cleansing organ of the body, liver function falls off by one-third. Mm-hmm. After 48 hours without solid food, the liver function is down to 50%. And it's only doing what's called first-pass things. Mm-hmm. In other words, the liver is set up. There's certain substances that the first time the, the blood goes to the liver, the liver is going to grab those things and deal with them. And once the liver has dealt with all the first-pass things, then it can deal with the second-pass things. Mm-hmm. When we fast, when we restrict our diets, then the liver never gets to second-pass things because its efficiency is so destroyed by lack of food. Also, because, of course, the brain requires food every single minute of every single day. If we don't eat and drinking fruit or vegetable juices, especially raw ones, is no food of any kind... The brain starts stealing from the muscles in order to keep itself fed. And for reasons that we don't yet fully understand, after the age of 40, the brain steals first from the heart. (gasps) So that if we do not eat food, then what we do is eat our heart out. Wow. Susan... 
Could you speak to me about the fact that I think that uh, a lot of women are uncomfortable about their womb? And so can you speak about ways for women and for men to uh, have a loving reconciliation with their womb and men with the womb of women? Oh, what a wonderful question. What a big question. Yeah. And it's a question that in many ways kind of shakes the foundation of our culture. Yes. So I immediately think of a beautiful coming-of-age ceremony um, that I didn't participate in but, but was somewhat of a sidelined helper for uh, among um, the people of the great peaceful nations mm-hmm. who are sometimes called the Iroquois Confederacy, and it's the people who live here in the region where I live on Turtle Island, which is what they call North America. Right. And as this young woman went into her coming-of-age ceremony, she was told that she was menstruating, and that meant that her womb, her uterus, was mature, and that her womb was the lifeblood of her people. Mm. And that without her womb, her people would die. Mm. That did not mean that she was required to have children, but it meant that she was required to always honor that ability and that power of her womb. And that she was to understand that any man that she allowed into her body would affect her people for seven generations whether or not they made a baby together, that she should honor and value her womb and her vagina so highly that she would allow nothing and no one that she did not think was for the good of her people for seven generations to come near that. Magnificent. And this is what I mean by it shakes the foundations of our very culture because our cultures, and and by that I mean Western industrialized cultures, are based on woman hating. Yes. And I know that sounds really dreadfully blunt, and that women have made tremendous advances even over our lifetimes. But there is still the emotional, psychological basis of woman hating there. And that woman hating has two primary arenas that it comes out in. In the alternative health movement, woman hating is disguised as milk hating. And in the kind of cultures at large, woman-hating is disguised as fear and repugnance at menstrual blood. Speak for a moment first about milk-hating. Who makes milk? The breast. Women. Yes, the breast. You know, mammals, female mammals make milk. Boys don't make milk. So I have actually heard people say that milk is a kind of pus. Right. And, you know, would any woman who's breastfed a child say that? Of course not. Of course not. Right. I've heard men say that menstrual blood is accumulated toxins and filth. And I say to them, oh, you think your children are made of accumulated toxins and filth? Wake up. Mm-hmm. Of course not. The menstrual blood is, in fact, the best blood that the body can make in any month. And it has more iron, more calcium, and more oomph to it than the blood that's circulating in a woman's body. This is, because, this is important. That's, what, that's right. That's this is so important. Yeah. And so, of course, milk is a tremendous life-giving substance. Again, back to Japan. I said I was just visiting in Japan. Yes. Every meal that I had that was cooked for me in a Japanese home contained dairy products. And I said, but, 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 we're told that Japanese people don't like dairy products. And they said, oh, we love dairy products. And they explained to me that actually up until fairly recently, Mm -hmm. Japan had closed itself off from the world. And that meant that Japan had to grow every grain of rice that it ate. Now, Japan is a very mountainous country, and there's not a lot of cultivatable area. 
And that meant that uh, there was no such thing as a lawn. There was rice paddies everywhere. Mm-hmm. Once Japan opened up and became a, a nation that had trade with other nations, mm-hmm. um, it became unreasonable for them to grow rice, right? Because they, you know, these tiny little fields. So let so them Japan. let them eat camembert. So indeed, so indeed, so what they have done is they have converted most of their rice fields into pastures for dairy animals. Mm-hmm. And what I was told was that the samurai and the emperors and the shoguns, those kind of people, always got the dairy products. And it made them taller, stronger, and longer lived. Uh-huh. And the poorer people had to make do with the tofu. Right. And now that in general the standard of living in Japan is so much higher, and now that there is so much more access to dairy products, they are jumping in for all they're worth. I tell you, Johanna, you see a woman over the age of 60 in Japan, she's bent almost double with osteoporosis from lack of dairy products. Wow. And I'm not saying that dairy products are a cure-all or a be-all. I will tell you truthfully that we need bone-building minerals from white sources, which is dairy products, and from green sources, which would be stinging nettle infusion, or it would be cooked kale or cooked collards or cooked mustard greens. All right. But we've got to have both. We can't just rely on green sources, and we can't just rely on white sources. So we were at milk and menstrual blood, and... Milk and menstrual blood, Rick. woman hating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which then gets kind of incorporated into the woman herself. You know, the most horrible thing for me was to have my period. That's how I was imprinted. And I want to speak of healing that, speak of... to hear your wise woman's voice speak about that. Well, I hear you saying that, you know, as for many, many women, that when you began to menstruate, you were not told that your womb was a priceless treasure to all of your people. You were slapped, or you were told, now you're disgusting, now you're filthy. Right, right. And now you can't wear patent leather shoes because boys can look up your skirt. (laughs) Right. Right? Right. (laughs) Right, and now you have to keep your knees together. Well, any woman with any imagination can figure out how to get pregnant with her knees together, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, many of us are initiated into womanhood by being told um, something that is very hurtful to our hearts and our souls. Yes. And so how do we go back and redeem that? Well, one of the things that I offer here at the Wise Woman Center is a moon lodge. And once a month through spring, summer, and fall, women gather here, and it's not necessarily in relation to the moon. It's uh, usually the second Friday of the month. Um, and we have a moon lodge, which has n- n- is not a sweat lodge. At our moon lodge, we sing, we dance, and we pass a talking stick. And each woman is invited to share her wisdom or her concerns with the other women. And I have to tell you, Johanna, when we have teenage women in the circle, we, we sit in age order. Mm-hmm. And the talking stick starts with the eldest woman. Mm-hmm. And it passes down. And by the time the talking stick gets to the teenage women, I, the teenage women look at us and say things like, Oh, my goodness. Well, when my friends tell me I have to be this way or that way in order to be a woman, I will be able to tell them, you don't have to do this or that in order to be a woman. woman there are many, many ways to be mm-hmm. a woman. Mm-hmm. And just that, I think, is so important. And, of course, we do discuss bleeding and pregnancy and menopause. And this also very much helps these young women to hear older women talk about it. In fact, so far as we know, the Moon Lodge is a part of Aboriginal and Native cultures across the planet. And again, the woman-hating voices would have us believe that the women are isolated and put aside because they are dirty when they are bleeding. Mm -hmm. This is so far from the truth. In fact, one of my favorite examples is a, uh, a culture in Africa. And in this culture, the women create a menstrual village. And every single woman of every age leaves the village where the men are Mm -hmm. and goes to the minstrel village for seven days out of every month. How lovely. 
And of course there, the women who are bleeding bleed, and the younger women are taught about reproduction and about birth control and about how to be healthy. And the older women, the crones who are no longer bleeding, of course, are the ones who are the teachers and are helping to teach the younger women and to help tend to the babies so that the women who are bleeding can be in a visionary state. Many cultures actually um, allow the visionary state of the menstruating woman to be a kind of guide for what their culture needs to do and how they need to really be true to themselves. So the Moon Lodge um, here, of course, we can't do it for seven days. It's just a few hours. But at least it gives women, again, that opportunity to hear the wisdom of the elders, to bring forward their concerns, and to have the younger women there be in a community of women. If we had five minutes, that I would tell the story of White Buffalo Calf Woman. Oh, yes. Yes, Uh, yes, yes. This is a story that comes from the Great Plains of Turtle Island. And um, from the people uh, who live there, mostly the Lakota and the Dakota. And you have heard this story. I have heard this story. It's a very common story. But it wasn't until I got some rather interesting messages that I began to realize the importance of this story. So one of those first messages was given to me on a city street in Boulder, Colorado, and I was being walked home by a lovely herbal friend of mine who is also a Sufi master. Mm -hmm. And he turned to me and he said, White Buffalo Calf Woman gave me a message for you. Mm -hmm. And he took out of his pocket a piece of paper with writing on it and handed it to me. I said, Paul, this is very strange. Why is White Buffalo Calf Woman giving you messages for me? He said to me, he said... She said, you're too busy to listen to her. And I at least sit still long enough that she could get the message through to me. Mm -hmm. So with some embarrassment, I took this message. And um, the part that I can reveal to you is that White Buffalo Calf Woman asked me to tell her story. So I have, so I took that on, and I thought, well, okay, but I don't understand the significance of my telling the story. Well, of course, less than a year later, I was at a uh, peace elders gathering mm-hmm. in Holland, and Grandmother Wainona Two Worlds uh, said, we need a moon lodge. I said, you're so right, Grandmother, we really do need a moon lodge. Here was a large gathering, and there was no special place for women. And so we set up a moon lodge, and uh, Grandmother Two World said that she would give us the moon lodge teachings. Well, she was sitting with her back to the door of the space that we were in, and she was teaching us. And suddenly someone said, oh, Grandmother, there's a man standing at the door listening. And without missing a beat or turning around, she said, well, he can stand there and listen if he wants to. But, you know, if he hears this information, it will make his swingy thingy fall off. You should have seen how fast he left. (laughs) (laughs) So she proceeded in these teachings to tell us the story of White Buffalo Calf Woman and to reveal to us many secrets within that story. So let's take the story from the top. As we recall, this story begins with famine. There was no rain. Plants were not growing because plants were growing the buffalo, the bison, which the people on the plains depended on for their living, disappeared. And every day, uh, scouts were going further and further out, trying to see if they could see any buffalo anywhere, if they could go and bring some buffalo home. Two young men went very far one day to look for buffalo, and they found a small rise, and they went up to the top of the rise to see if they could see buffalo. And off in the distance, sure enough, they saw a cloud of dust. And you know how it is when you're looking off in the distance. It's hard to tell if it's a whole herd of buffalo far away making a cloud of dust or if it's something small nearby making that cloud of dust. Well, it turned out to be something reasonably small and fairly nearby. And as it got closer, they could see it was, in fact, a naked woman. These two young men came running down off of where they were and ran over to where the woman was. And one of the young men, well... He was excited by the sight of this naked woman, and he began to force himself on her, mm-hmm. whereupon he became a pile of bones. Yeah. The other young man, learning wisdom very quickly, put his eyes on the ground and said to the woman, What can I do for you? Yeah. Now let's stop for a moment. Uh, why on earth would a woman be walking across the plains naked? Well, she's menstruating, and she doesn't want to get blood on her clothing. Yeah. And she doesn't have a hundred t-shirts like we do. Right. 
she has one leather dress. So she's taking it off. So she doesn't get blood on it because she doesn't have tampons or pads or anything like that. Right. Right. And remember that grandmother said that if that man listened to the Moon Lodge teachings, that his penis would fall off. Well, we can imagine what happens to a man who approaches a menstruating woman without respect. Yes. And in fact, we don't have to imagine, we're told, he is simply destroyed and turned into bones. His friend looks at the ground and asks the woman if there is anything that he can do for her. And she says, yes, go back to your people and tell them, I will come with important gifts and messages for you in four days. Mm -hmm. Most women menstruate for four days. Right. So once again, we are being told that she is menstruating, that she is on her moon. He, of course, runs back to his people and says, this very powerful woman is coming to be with us. And we better get ready for her. Well, there's not a lot that people can do. They're in a state of famine, but whatever they can do, they do. And sure enough, four days later, this woman comes walking into their midst, dressed in the most beautiful white buffalo robe. Hmm. All the more reason to take it off when you're menstruating, eh? That's right. <laughs> That's right. And, of course, you know, songs are sung for her, dances are performed for her. Whatever food the people have is offered to her. And this goes on for all day and much of the night. Mm-hmm. Finally, when the formalities are done and she is well greeted, she turns to them and says, I have come to tell you important things, and I have brought you some gifts. Mm-hmm. She says, you're starving, and I want you to know why you are starving. You're starving because you no longer honor women's wounds. Mm-hmm. You're starving because you no longer honor the moontime blood of women. Your people will die out if you do not honor the womb and the woman who is the bearer of it. Mm. To remind you of this, I bring you two gifts. Mm. The sweat lodge, which is also called the home of the stone people, Mm -hmm. and the pipe, which is sometimes called the peace pipe, Mm -hmm. this chanupa. And... white buffalo calf woman went on to explain that when the women menstruated they went to the moon lodge and this was their sacred place and their visioning place and that the men had been disrupting the women in that so she had brought the sweat lodge so that women would honor so that men would honor the women being in the moon lodge and that the men were to go in the sweat lodge in remembrance of the woman's moon lodge So if you've ever been annoyed that bleeding women don't go in the sweat lodge, well, why be annoyed? The sweat lodge is a fake moon lodge. Mm -hmm. Women, in general, really shouldn't be going into the sweat lodge, I'm sorry to say, because I know many women like it. And this is because during our fertile years, the uh, embryo in the first three weeks of life is incredibly vulnerable to heat damage. And many women simply don't know they're pregnant in those first two weeks, or even the first three weeks. That's right. And so this is why women are not supposed to go in a sweat lodge. The sweat lodge is for the men so that they have some way of apprehending what menstruation, birth, and menopause is about. Mm -hmm. It's for the men to remember to honor women. Mm -hmm. Right? So... And again, if you ask someone who's very conversant in this, they will tell you that the sweat lodge itself is the womb of the Earth Mother. Mm-hmm. So men are going back into the womb in the same way that women go into the moon lodge. The peace pipe, said White Buffalo Calf Woman, or the pipe, the chanupa, is to be kept in two pieces, the stem and the bowl. Mm-hmm. The bowl, she says, is made of the menstrual blood of the Earth. It is pipestone, it is a red stone, it is the identical color to menstrual blood, and there's only one small area where this stone can be gotten, and all pipestone is from this one deposit, which white buffalo calf woman said was the menstrual blood of the earth. Wow. That represents, obviously, the woman. We're back to the cave of Grandmother Growth, right? Mm-hmm. The bowl of the pipe, the opening, the womb, the menstrual blood. The stem, she said, represents man. She says, the stem itself can't do anything, but if you put the stem together with the bowl, the stem can help spark the creative fire. Yes. 
so we be also begin to see in this the relationship that men are given vis-a-vis women, and that is to help support and spark women's creative fire. Yeah. So White Buffalo Calf Woman came with a message, which is to honor the moon time of women. And she came with two gifts for men, because it was the men who had forgotten. Yeah. And these gifts are reminders to the men to honor women. And they are the pipe and the sweat lodge. Women have other powers and other tools. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for providing this forum of wisdom for all of us. Your show is like a, a gently revolving and sparkling moon lodge, isn't it? <laughs> Susan, before we part, let me quote something of yours to you. You have said, My goal in life is to get as old as I possibly can and have as much fun as I possibly can and then die. Would you like to say a few words about that before we close? Well, a young man out in California, um, you know, said something to me about, you know, not getting old. And I said to him, you have to understand that if you wish to live for a long time, then getting old is part of that. Yes. And I said, your only other choice is to die young. And so my goal is to get old. I want to get old. Now, perhaps I have different adjectives for old than you might have. I want to get excitingly old. I want to get thrillingly old. I want to get magnificently old. I want to get vitally old. I want to have a lot of yummy juiciness in my old, because old doesn't mean decrepit. And young does not necessarily mean vigorous and healthy either. So endorphins are compounds produced by the brain when we're having fun. And endorphins are tremendously important to strengthen and support the immune system. We said before that stress wears down the immune system. Fun does the opposite. Fun builds up the immune system. Laughing builds up the immune system. And so producing endorphins, having fun, having a good time actually makes us more resilient and less likely to die at a young age. Mm -hmm. And then there's the last part of that statement, which is, and die. So far as I can tell, it does indeed happen to all of us. I was on a TV show last week, and the uh, moderator of that show said, oh, no, no, we've had people on here who claim you never have to die. (laughs) And I said, well, I don't want to point fingers, but so far as I know, Allah died, Buddha died, and Jesus died. Yeah. And if they died, I'm going to bet I die too. I mean, Mother Teresa died. Right. Thank you. (laughs) I just simply, you know, point to those because they're kind of boys that everybody knows. Uh, They're kind of thought of as being, well, shall we say, spiritual. Famous boys. Spiritual was it. Well, we can say that's not going to do it. And they fasted, so fasting was going to do it. Well, that didn't do it either. Right. So I just, you know, bring out those three lies because they have, you know, kind of a lot of things that people can relate to, even though we could go on, you know, with millions and millions of names. And I think that for me, one of the ways that we can have more fun in our lives is if we admit to the fact that it is terminal. If we, as my Native American grandmothers have taught me, if we wake up every morning and say, it is a good day to die. Yeah. And that means we're not putting off those affectionate, respectful, honoring things that are so often in our hearts and so rarely become manifest for many of us. Mm. It means keeping your karma current so that what you're responsible for, you deal with. Mm-hmm. And you don't hide out. It means being nose to nose with your shadow. Mm. And really being a whole woman person. So indeed, I intend to get as old as possible, have as much fun as possible, and then die. Well, this has definitely been good for my immune system, Susan. <laughs> good to hear you laughing. And I want to thank you for your generosity and your kindness to have uh, given these these wonderful words. And thank you so much for maintaining 
this beautiful space for women so that we can come together and learn from each other. Yes. Women's wisdom is infinite and there is simply no way to get rid of it because it lives in every cell in our bodies. Thank you with all my heart, Susan. Thank you too. Green blessings. Thank you.